Welcome to the Innovations Podcast on the Media Scorch Podcast Network. My name is Jason Weedle. Today's show is an extended interview with Anna Jane Joyner. You heard pieces of this interview on the Environmentalism Show, along with a few others. Today, this is the entire interview where Anna speaks about the environment and a lot of other interesting elements of her experience and the Christian's responsibility to the environment. Please enjoy. Anna Jane Joyner, thank you for joining me. I appreciate you being here. Could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor. Um, I am Anna Jane Joyner. I am the daughter of Rick Joyner, who some of you might know as a writer who's written I think, close to 50 books, um, including The Final Quest, which was quite well-received. And he's also the pastor of Morningstar Ministries and kind of has an extensive um what some have termed evangelical empire, but a large ministry that spans a lot of different areas. Um, so I am his firstborn daughter. I'm the eldest of five. Um, and these days, actually not even these days, uh, for the past 10 years, I have been on the forefront of, of environmental activism and started out uh, fighting mountaintop removal coal mining because I was born... Actually, I was born in Jackson, Mississippi, but I was raised in Western North Carolina in the mountains and just feel very connected to the Appalachian Mountains and the culture and the people there. Um, and then I, I, for the past really three to four years, I've been focusing on climate change and a facet of the work that I do is working with people on people of faith to help um, all of us understand how our faith and spirituality connects to this issue and how uh, Christians are called to care for God's creation and to care for our neighbors and how these things are very connected. It, 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 those are issues that often don't feel connected for us, I think, or maybe if we come from certain backgrounds within the Christian world, um, work, being concerned about the environment seems sometimes something that maybe is completely separate from our faith. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a great question um, that I've done a fair bit of thinking and research on. I can uh, certainly share my findings and opinions. Um, but I think, you know, I think a lot of it is sort of over-politicization in, in the public sphere. You know, I grew up kind of, first of all, not really thinking about the environment. Um, you know, we were raised outside and we spent a lot of time hiking and spent the summers on the Gulf Coast of Alabama on the water. So we definitely grew up with kind of a love and admiration for the outdoors and for nature and, and for this sort of magnificent creation. But at the time, I didn't connect it uh, to the need to take care of it. Um, we didn't talk about recycling or, you know, environmentalists were kind of these distant uh, liberal hippies that were probably going to hell. Um, and we just didn't think that much about it or, or think through that lens. Uh, it wasn't until I went to college and started learning about mountaintop removal coal mining and and how these uh how you know we really are dramatically harming you know god's creation in this incredible planet that that god puts so much thought and love into creating and how that in turn isn't just hurting trees and birds and mountains it's, it's deeply hurting people uh, and harming people and um, those are very very big moral and, and spiritual questions 
whenever I whenever I think about kind of Christian response to environmentalism, I always think of this. Uh, quite a few years ago, I I was working in a place with um, one of the, one of the guys who worked there. He would would sort of good naturedly make fun of of religion and and me being a Christian. And uh, at one point, I I remember. I don't remember what exactly the conversation was, but it was something about recycling and the environment. And he kind of jokingly said, you know, uh, you know, oh, yeah, you probably are worried about that because you're a Bible thumper. And I thought, oh, you just don't even know that this world that I'm in, not only are we not worried about it, <laughs> but we're actually often actively opposed to – um, environmental concern, being concerned about climate change. Um, why, why are we continually, you know, I think there has been a lot of movement in a lot of um, faith circles, but there, are, there is still an element to the Christian church, especially evangelicalism, that sees it suspiciously. Why are we seeing environmental care so suspiciously? So it's really, um, it, it's quite surprising to me when I actually, so I had, um, you know, around the time I went to college, I had pretty much affirmatively left the Christian faith and uh, was sort of living more of a, a heathenistic or hedonistic lifestyle. And I, I got really inspired about uh, the environment, about caring for the environment through this amazing opportunity I had to spend six months in New Zealand and just absolutely falling in love uh, with the remarkable mountains and, and the ocean and these magical places outside. And then sort of conversely learning about how this word, uh, world actually works. Um, so, and then also learning about all of the very um, unkind you know, thoughtless things that, that we're doing to it that are harming wildlife and people. And I kind of came back from that trip sort of really inspired and almost radicalized to care for the environment and um, felt like, you know, people like my dad and other Christians should just kind of get it. Like, of course, we should take care of the earth. That seems like a very um, rational way of thinking. Yeah. Um, but then... What I found is like we were just kind of it was like, you know, we were fighting like we were fighting brick walls, you know, like we just weren't using language or communication styles that actually translated to the other person. And so uh, we were getting nowhere. Um, so I decided to read the Bible and to see what the Bible had to say about caring for the earth and um, talk to all of these amazing Christian leaders who I didn't even know existed before this research, um, who were not only devout Christians, in many cases, evangelicals, but also um, avid environmentalists. And, and, you know, what I learned was that, you know, the Bible itself has a great deal to say about caring for the earth and, and caring for our neighbors. Um, you know, I think the first commandment in, in Genesis is to, is to steward and keep the garden. Um, and it's just consistent throughout the Bible that this is a part of the Christian calling. Uh, and it's amazing to me. And a lot of our kind of church fathers understood that, you know, like Francis Schaeffer, uh, who's considered by many to be sort of the grandfather of evangelicalism, wrote a book called um, Pollution and the Death of Man. And and it's really 
a quite modern, I would say even within just the past 50 to 60 years that evangelical Christians have not identified with this um, need and call to care for the earth and care, you know, and kind of the understanding of how not caring for the earth leads to harming our neighbors and to hurting people. Um, so yeah, it is, it's striking to me that the Bible itself is, is this amazing um, kind of textbook on, on caring for the earth. And yet a lot of modern evangelicals feel uh, very distant from that calling. And, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons that it has happened that way, but I don't think that it's true to the actual Christian faith um, that we, you know, that we aren't, you know, called, called to take care of this amazing, amazing place that God lovingly created and, and put us here to take care of. So is it, is it political? Is it a part of our theology that we've developed over the past 50 years? Is it both? I think there are some uh, there are some Christian traditions where you know some of the more Calvinist traditions um, you know tend to believe that human beings just don't have the power to actually uh, harm the earth on any sort of grand scale. Um, but a lot of, of evangelicals don't believe that. My dad, for example, is very um, you know really you know be- believes that we could definitely hurt the, the earth on that scale. I mean, look at all of the ways that we're that we have access to hurting the earth, nuclear warfare, all kinds of, of destruction uh, that are that are at the hands of humans, and certainly environmental destruction is, is one of them. So I don't think it's a part of the theology. I, I genuinely don't, except for in some very small um, circles. I think it is more, I wouldn't even say politics, it's more of an ideological uh, framework that has developed over the past several decades um, that, you know, it's just not a core part of, of conservative ideology at the moment to identify as an environmentalist. And I, I think it's more of a political ideology than anything to do with the actual faith. Do you think that has to do with kind of the origins of some of the movement? Like I remember in the eighties, it seemed to me that that was some of the beginning of when we were starting to hear about uh, recycling and, you know, that's when there was a lot of Save the Whale stuff and Captain Planet came out and um, it, it all it, – it seemed to be something that was very easy for a lot of Christians to reject. Um, you know, like you said, it was kind of this this hippie fringe movement. Is that something that maybe has turned people off? I mean, I think that certainly some of the early kind of modern environmental um, movements were were driven, you know, kind of connected to sort of the hippies and um, that era, which you know had a lot of uh, values that that weren't um, weren't a part of, of, of the Christian identity. And so I think that was you know certainly a part of it. But then when you look actually. At the founders of the environmental movement, so like people like John Muir or Henry David Thoreau, um, many of them were, were the children of pastors, and a lot of their um, their environmentalism stemmed from a spiritual understanding of kind of awe and appreciation of the Creator and, and the Earth. And so, I don't think that you know I think some of the early environmentalism was actually directly influenced by by Christian values. And yeah, but I agree. There's certainly, I think, in the in the late '70s and '80s, you know, the environmental movement was attached to some of these larger social and cultural movements that were not as palatable to conservative Christians. 
Um, and I think it goes both ways, you know, ha having, you know, coming from an evangelical, um, you know, upbringing and world and, and having worked in the environmental community for the past 10 years, like there's some interesting trends that you don't normally think of. Um, one being a lot of environmentalists are people of faith, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and, and many of them are Christians. Like I get pulled aside all the time being like, um, hey, like I'm, I'm so glad that you're talking about this connection because I've kind of had these two two parts of my life siloed. Like I didn't feel comfortable talking about my faith in the context of my work um, or sort of vice or on the flip side, I've gone to speak at, at more conservative churches and gotten pulled aside afterwards by you know scientists or people who just love nature, people who just really value um, environmental care, but haven't haven't found an avenue for connecting it to their faith, you know, saying the opposite. Like I just, I, I really am passionate about caring for the environment, but I just don't feel like there's a safe space for me to talk about that at my yeah, church. Yeah. And, and I think we do ourselves a disservice by not, uh, by not reaching out and connecting more with people who we assume are not like us and who maybe aren't like us in a lot of ways. But um, I've found that humans share a lot more value values than you would, than you would think. Um, and I've seen some magical you know, moments, you know, my, my first job out of college was at the Sierra Club, which is kind of a quintessential environmental organization. And um, my boss was a very devout Christian. And she was also, you know, a lifelong hippie and had been uh, working in the environmental community for 30 years. And my dad came up to meet with her. And it was just so striking to see how much they had in common. Hmm. Um, you know, it's certainly their faith, but also, you know, a lot of the same uh, values and perspectives on caring for the earth. And, and you know, my dad never up until that point would have assumed that he had a great deal in common with one of the senior leaders of the Sierra Club. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to overcome some of these boundaries and, and reach out more. So what, what, what kind of change do you think you're seeing over the past 10 years or maybe just over the past couple of years with it, with the – with Christianity's approach or um, understanding of environmental issues? Yeah, I think there's some, some definitely some interesting trends happening. Um, I see where to start. Um, I think millennials in particular um, tend to be a little bit more apolitical and don't feel like they have to kind of choose sides on the political spectrum. Like I have to be a strong conservative Republican or, you know, a kind of liberal Democrat, they can, you know, I've seen a lot of, of millennials in that space saying, you know, I want to be, um, you know, I want to be pro-life, for example, but I also think that includes caring for the environment and caring for people who are harmed by environmental degradation and working on social justice issues that impact how people, the quality of life for people who are alive now. And, and so I've seen much more of an openness from millennials to to caring about the environment and to caring about environmental justice issues, and in, in, in addition to a, a whole host of social justice related um, related issues and campaigns. Human trafficking comes to mind as being like a huge one that the millennial evangelicals seem to be really rallying around, um, which is amazing. And I think it's you know I think I I was very dissatisfied with the church growing up because I felt like it put a lot of emphasis on uh, kind of the supernatural world. I was raised in a charismatic church um, or the afterlife, you know, what kind of happened after this life is over. And I've always just been this super curious 
um, kind of immersive person. And I, I really wanted to understand and experience what this life had to offer. And I, I think we're seeing a move, you know, more, more towards how does Christianity, how do Jesus's teachings um, how does my my spiritual life influence and impact the world around me right now? And I think you're seeing that you know through people like Shane Claiborne and the Simple Way, uh, and a whole host of other Christian movements, particularly younger Christians who really are interested in using um, or accessing our our faith teachings to to positively impact the world now. And I feel very drawn to that, and and think quite a few. I think there's really a move towards that towards that approach, which is exciting. Um, and then I also think, you know, I think we're kind of the eighties and nineties were sort of the, you know, the pinnacle of consumerism and materialism and everyone had giant houses and giant cars and wanted to make lots of money. And, um, and, you know, I think a lot of the evangelical teachings at that time were very sort of self-focused. So like, what is your personal relationship with God? Not as much like what, how does that relationship um, manifest in how you treat people in the world around you? And I, I think people are sort of being drawn away from, from that, that world. I think, you know, I get the sense myself included of just sort of being exhausted with this kind of material roller coaster we've been on and really craving um, more simplicity and more quiet moments. And, uh, and that means consuming less. And, and there's a lot of environmental implications of, of simpler living and a quieter living. And I think that's a really promising trend. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I hope, I don't know how I'll articulate that. Yeah, one. <laughs> I, I think that's really interesting. The idea of kind of the changing of values, um, I guess that's that's kind of a topic that interests me in in looking at at generations and do you think that some of that is the um you know we were so focused on things on seeing the blessing of God for a number of years and and maybe there was a period of time where we felt like we were being blessed by God but then it sort of failed um, or it did for some people, maybe not everyone. Um, you know, and I'm I'm still serving God, and I'm still tithing, and I'm still doing my very best. But the jobs dried up, and the savings dried up. And do you think that that has an influence on the way that Christians are seeing the world and seeing their responsibility, not just to themselves but to other people? I mean, I think we've been, you know, millennials in particular kind of came of age in this uh, economically difficult time where there wasn't sort of the sky's the limit. I can become, you know, my own corporate boss and have a gazillion dollars um, or just even I think like our parents' generations in a lot of ways. It was, you know, if you are consistent and committed to your work and you do the nine to five, you can work yourself up. You know, my grandfather is like totally that story. He started out working at, you know, sales in JCPenney and worked himself up to uh, a, a district manager and did quite well for himself. And, and, and that was, you know, those possibilities were sort of endless or seemingly endless, at least for um, a certain constituency. And I think, you know, millennials just haven't had those same opportunities. Like we haven't had 
there isn't, you know, there's sense of endless possibility because we can, we can, you know, there's the, kind of the age of the internet where like you can do or become anything, but there's not the same uh, source of, of big money coming towards the middle class. And so I think it has had a lot of people that combined with, I think a lot, you know, even my parents have just moved, you know, moved into a smaller house and are getting rid of a lot of the stuff that they own because they found that consumerism was actually more exhausting than it was worth. And, <laughs> and so I think those combinations mean that our generation and to some degree other generations are looking more towards community and simplicity and, um, and to kind of maybe more creativity and entrepreneurialism and, and how we go about living our lives and, and living our faith. And I think maybe that that idea of endless possibility and endless resources overflowed into the way that we view the environment. Like like we see, it seems like for generations in America, we see possibility and we see opportunity as as just boundless, and it's only up to me how much I succeed. And we, I think, we also saw the environment that way that that. It's, you know, I can use as much oil as I can afford. <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like as I talk to my grandmother that there's this kind of perspective that she doesn't quite understand why people want to put limits on certain things um, because the perspective that she has lived in is that there is – unlimited resources and to put limits on those must come from someone with a certain kind of agenda that uh, I don't know wants to um, limit her pers- her choices or whatever it might be yeah it's really it's quite I think you're totally on to something I think it is we have kind of been in this age of excess where we were um, where it was feasible. Uh, and it's not, we're finding it's no longer feasible just to use uh, our natural resources like they are never ending because there are very real repercussions on, on this, you know, not even the planet on, you know, on people. Like, I think there's a great, I can't remember who, who said it recently, but somebody was like the planet, you know, when it comes to things like, especially climate change, the planet's going to be fine. You know, like the planet will rebound. Uh, who's really in trouble is human beings. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're the ones that are going to be, you know, really um, put in harm's way. And, and it's of course the most vulnerable human beings first, um, which had, you know, is a great injustice. So yeah, I think, and I, and I think it's kind of ironic as well, because, you know, some of the, you know, like one of the things I've been thinking about being from North Carolina, where there's a giant energy monopoly, Duke Energy, who kind of um, dictates, you know, how much solar goes into the grid and how much energy efficiency, um, these sort of basic ways of decreasing our reliance on fossil fuels happen. And they do it based on how much money, you know, they can make for their shareholders. You know, that in and of itself is not a very conservative principle. Like, that's not an open market where the best technology wins. Um, that's, you know, that's a monopoly. And, and so I think it's it's not only strange to me from sort of a philosophical perspective, it's also just, like, not very, like, it's not very, like, steeped in, like, free market principles. Like, we've essentially, like, held up these giant energy 
fossil fuel companies for the past like a hundred years through subsidies and government programs, even though they're the most uh, wealthy organizations on the planet. And, and now, you know, renewable energy is becoming more and more viable, but it's sort of this um, like underdog, but it's not because it's not any, not a better technology. It's because the market isn't, isn't a truly free market. Mm. Um, which I think, you know, that's, it's, it's like that to me is like, you know, it's kind of the basis of a free market ideology and it's not what we're seeing in how we're running our energy systems. Yeah. Some, some folks might have, have seen you and your father, Rick Joyner on the years of living dangerously miniseries um, on Showtime and, talking about the environment and environmental issues and, and most of your appearance on that was kind of a conversation confrontation I don't know how to quite put it with with him about or or maybe a, a attempt to convince him that um, to be concerned about the environment um, how, how do you feel like your father's response has been in general to your career and your concerns and, and maybe uh, leadership in general in the American evangelical church. I think, um, I mean, he's overwhelmingly very supportive and very proud of me. I think he, he, you know, he, and he, he's a hundred percent behind me on sort of the theological premise that that Christians should be caring for the environment and, and caring for, you know, how you know, caring for human communities who are impacted negatively by poor environmental decision making. So I think in that sense, we're very aligned, um, you know, because of how over politicized climate change is in particular, we sort of uh, still go back and forth over some of the semantics around that issue. And you know, it is, it, it's a deeply, you know, my father is very, very conservative. He gets his news from very conservative outlets. He's rarely uh, connecting with even other Christians who kind of are outside of that, of a very far right conservative ideology. And so it was such a fascinating experience to spend this year with him traveling around the country and meeting with climate scientists and people who are being impacted by climate impacts here in our own country um, and other, you know, Christians like uh, former Congressman Bob Inglis, who are deeply concerned and passionate about climate change. And it was, you know, it was my my dad's a very stubborn man, and it, it and he doesn't he's not the kind of person where you can just kind of lay out um, the facts and he's going to sort of rule one way or another. Like it takes him time to research and process information. Um, and I think that's admirable. I certainly have inherited a lot of those qualities. Um, but I think one of the most beautiful parts of that journey was just, is just sort of the story of overcoming different boundaries. You know, it, it's rare that, um, you know, there was this one scene in particular that was shot over the course of the day where it was me, um, Dr. Richard Muller, who's a, a climate science, who was once a climate denier and then through his own research and data kind of switched when he just looked at the data and realized there was no other explanation for, for what he was seeing. Um, and then my dad, and then Ian Summerhalder, who was our celebrity um, correspondent, he's this kind of heartthrob actor on The Vampire Diaries. And we were just having this most, you know, most fascinating um, conversation. And I think it, we're just never, I'm never going to be around the table with, you know, a celebrity heartthrob, a climate scientist, and my dad, and then me, the kind of 
quintessential climate activists. And, and so many beautiful conversations and stories happened out of those interactions and relationships. And they never would have happened, you know, were it not for this opportunity to be on this, you know, Showtime series. And I think the moral for me was like, we really do just need to be reaching out more and connecting more across these sort of cultural boundaries and silos that we have set up because, um, you know, my dad ended up really admiring and, and loving the producers and they ended up really admiring and appreciating him, even though we all collectively didn't agree on everything. Yeah. And that, you know, that was very valuable. Something that a lot of that conversation um, made me think of was that we are very – well, I, I guess, you know, you, you mentioned just kind of laying out the facts and sometimes we want that to be the thing that works and changes people's minds, no matter what the issue is, you know, to be able to say, here's the, here are the facts. And then the, the person, the person we're discussing it with says, oh yeah, you're right. I'll, I will change. But for just about every issue, it's not simply something that we have come to some logical conclusions about because we have weighed the facts. It's it's built into our worldview and our the people that we're surrounded by and it's a part of our identity really. And so for people to change and over the years, you know, I, I have changed my perspective on a, a number of issues, but it hasn't come just from simply listening to some facts and it's come through a lot of conversations and a lot of reading and a lot of interactions with people. And uh, I, I guess for when we're looking at issues of climate change and environmentalism, sometimes we want people to change simply by laying out the facts, but it probably never happens that way. Um, as you are interacting with different people what what do you recommend to to people that they listen to or read or um kind of pursue or investigate to understand issues better yeah that's a, that's a really good question um i would say first of all i think a big part of this is just spending more time outside like i think that's something our just culture has moved away from. Like we don't spend that much time sort of in God's creation, really appreciating the, the absolute amazingness of this world and this gift of life that we've been given and also kind of responsibility to protect this gift. And so that's one piece of it. But as far as like just really good information um, goes, I would say, um, Catherine Hayhoe, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, is a wonderful resource for evangelicals in particular. She is a climate scientist who is also an evangelical Christian, and her husband is an evangelical pastor, and she just uh, has an amazing ability to communicate not over, not only kind of the scientific facts around this issue, but also sort of some of the, the spiritual elements and dynamics and, and moral components as well. So I definitely recommend anything that she has written or said. Um, there's tons of, um, you know, kind of YouTube clips and uh, she has a book and she's just a wonderful, a wonderful place to start from sort of an evangelical Christian in science perspective. 
Um, and then, you know, there's Dr. S uh, Matthew Sleeth has written a lot. Uh, his work isn't as focused on climate change as much as just kind of the, the basic Christian calling to care for the environment um, and sort of the theology behind that. And he and his wife both have a lot of just very practical tips about how we can kind of reorient our lives and our choices um, and our, you know, kind of spiritual lives in a way that um, answers this call in an authentic way and kind of brings us on this journey. So I think he is is a wonderful place to start as well. Um, those are the big two that come to mind, although there's, you know, there's a lot out there. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, also Ben Lowe is another great author. He uh, is the founder of Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, and he has I think, two books out and a lot of great uh, materials and resources. So he's another really good place to start. Can I ask you about some specific issues and why we need to be concerned about them? Um, Keystone Pipeline. The, why is that important? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, and um, so full disclosure, I, yeah. So I definitely think that we should, we should not allow Keystone Pipeline. I was actually a part of a group of, ministers and um, celebrities and other, you know, some farmers whose land the Keystone XL pipeline would go through who got arrested protesting this issue. So I am very deeply, um, deeply committed to, to preventing the Keystone XL pipeline. So there's a couple of pieces for me. Of course, the climate impacts are severe. Um, I don't know if it sort of pushes us past what the scientists deem as, as safe emissions, but essentially creates a piece of infrastructure that locks us into fossil fuel burning uh, at a really high rate for the next 50 to 100 years, um, which is definitely not progress. Um, also, tar sands are the most carbon intensive form of fuel. So it's not just like pumping up a bunch of regular oil that you would get, say, out of the ocean. Um, it's, it's a really, really dirty and carbon intensive kind of fuel. Um, but actually, the, the reasons that really move me on an emotional and spiritual level are, you know, you know, like I said, mountaintop removal was kind of my my the issue that got me to the table of environmental activism, and that's because I grew up on top of an Appalachian mountaintop, and you know, the thought of looking across the way and seeing my mountain, you know, the range across from our house destroyed um, or hugely disfigured was like enough to just like viscerally bring me to my knees and like the, the pain that I know of a lot of Appalachian communities who are having to endure, you know, their mountains being destroyed was very, very real. And also it creates a lot of um, horrible problems with water and air quality that have very real health implications on a lot of, a lot of communities. Um, so tar sands, um, Extraction is like mountaintop removal on steroids. It's one of the most uh, horrendous forms of environmental degradation I can possibly think of. It is massive. It's literally like looking at a moonscape. And um, it destroys the boreal forest, which is actually a carbon sink where a lot, you know, it kind of sucks in a lot of carbon. So it's helping to, to maintain um, a, a safe climate. But it also just destroys this land is where quite a, a few indigenous groups are, are located and it's just completely destroying their way of life, which um, is heartbreaking and, and really calls up a lot of moral questions. So 
that the actual impacts on the ground into the communities near near where the extraction would take place are are very um, moving to me. And then also there's a lot of, um, actually quite a few, you know, it's one of some of the most interesting coalitions to fight a piece of fossil fuel infrastructure have happened over the Keystone XL pipeline. And a lot of them are Tea Party groups and farmers and ranchers um, who don't want this, this kind of piece of infrastructure and this the kind of pipeline that they're building is, is known to have a lot of leaks and to have a lot of sort of ongoing problems to run through their property. So I think there's also a, a really interesting property rights question there. Um, you know, should people have, you know, have agency over, over whether this um, seemingly dangerous piece of infrastructure is going over and below their land and water? What about the the claim that even if we don't build the pipeline, the oil is extracted and shipped around the world anyway. Yeah. So I think, and I think that's another interesting element is most of that oil, you know, that's Canada's oil. That's not our oil. Um, there's no indication or policies in place that say that Keystone XL is going to make oil any cheaper in the United States. Most of it would be shipped to India and China and other places overseas. Um, and then of course the counter argument, well, as well, that's kind of happening either, that's going to happen either way. But what we've seen is, you know, when they, when it became clear that the Keystone XL pipeline was not a surefire thing, there was all this movement to build coal um, exports or kind of export sites um, in Vancouver and the Pacific Northwest um, to help, you know, create infrastructure sort of that way to, to get this to the global market. And the communities there have just wholeheartedly rallied against um, against that as an option. And to date, that doesn't seem like it's a very real option. So, um, yes, there are ways to train and, um, and sort of bus or truck some of this stuff, and it is being extracted, but a pipeline makes it so much more swifter and, and just really increases the rate of, of extraction. And again, most of it is going to go overseas anyways. So, um, there is some of that already happening, but the Keystone XL would just like make it a far more um, quick way of, of extracting the oil and getting it out to global markets. Sure. Yeah. What about the communities that are not just negatively affected, but sometimes positive, very often positively affected by co- coal or oil or whatever it is. Um, I live in a community where a coal-fired power plant was proposed a number of years ago, um, went through a lot of opposition and ended up not being built. But there was a lot in, – in this community, there was um, – there were a lot of people who wanted it to happen here, not because we love coal and want – a big factory in our community, but because there is a desperate need for jobs here. And, um, you know, if we were to say no more coal across the United States, there would be certain communities that would be probably simply put out of business, certain towns and um, areas that are dependent on that industry how do we navigate that? Yeah, it's it's a really important question um, that I won't 
claim to have any any perfect answers to. I do have some some thoughts on it, but you know, I think that there's you know, there's this is anytime you you significantly transition a, a large part of an economic system, there are going to be that there's going to be you know growing pains for sure, and that you know manifests in in jobs for a, a lot of communities and people, and I think it's something that we need to be very proactively thinking about now, you know, especially for places in the coal fields um, that are still dependent on coal. And, um, it, I, you know, that I don't think that is to be um, that is to be minimized, that that we have to provide other forms of economic stability and opportunity in these areas. And I, I think that has to be a part of the transition. And there's been some examples where that was done really well. And there's been other examples where that was done very poorly. Um, you know, there's a coal plant in Washington state where the company negotiated with the workers so that all of the workers were either absorbed into other jobs or, um, or were, or kind of given a really nice, uh, retirement package that essentially in closing the coal plant, they ensured that the like 80 or 90 people who were working there had an economically stable future. And I think we need to, to look for other examples like that. We also need to be thinking about what are some of the other industries that we can bring into these areas and grow in, in these areas. I have quite a few friends who are working on sort of sustainable economic um, opportunity ideas and, and, and you know testing and, and scaling them in different parts of Appalachia. And of course, that will have to happen in other areas. Um, but I also think, like, even though that is absolutely true, and we um, we cannot um, we can't sort of callously overlook communities who make their living off of fossil fuel. I also think there's sort of two pieces. My my husband is from um, what was coal country, Kentucky, kind of eastern Kentucky. Um, his town was a coal town you know, maybe a hundred years ago and they sort of tapped out and moved on to Harlan and other, uh, you know, coal areas nearby that still had a lot of, um, a lot of deposits and, you know, it essentially just left his community in, um, in desolation. And there was no sort of long-term plan for how the coal industry could support, uh, the, those communities. And they, you've seen that happen across Appalachia where a community will thrive for, you know, a few you know, maybe a few decades and then just move on. And there's no infrastructure in place for how that community can continue to survive off of other economies. So I don't think that the coal industry is a great example uh, for, for how to bring long-term economic viability and sustainability to communities. Um, and then I think, and this is, this is kind of a, I don't know if this is a harsher way of saying this, but I think it's a fair and real way of saying this. You know, there's, a lot of injustice when it comes to climate change. The people who are harmed the most are not the people who created the problem for the most part. Um, and I think there's a lot of interesting uh, metaphorical connections to slavery. You know, when we ended slavery, it was because it was the right thing to do. Um, did it leave a lot of people who depended on that economic system kind of uh, scrambling to figure out what to do. Yes, it did. Did that mean that it wasn't the morally correct thing to do? No, it didn't. And so I think, you know, it doesn't, you know, I think that burning fossil fuels is is a dangerous and immoral way of, of 
of sustaining our energy. And we're get, we have to look towards ways of transfer, transitioning off of it. And I don't think it has to be this horrible, um, you know, kind of harsh transition that leaves a lot of people in the lurch. I think we can do it in creative and innovative ways that, that takes care of communities. Um, but yeah. it's going to take all of us, you know, it's going to take a lot of creativity and a lot of uh, tenacity to make that happen. Do you have any specific stories or examples of ways that communities or, or vulnerable individuals are being affected by um, any, any of these, uh, these issues, whether it's climate change or coal mining or things that are environmental concerns? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, I, when I spent a lot of time on mountaintop removal coal mining or ending mountaintop removal coal mining, I spent a lot of time in communities in Appalachia that were um, being directly impacted. And there was all kinds of crazy sort of health problems that ended like very concentrated areas where there was a lot of mining um, and there was a lot of people who were getting sick and a lot of people who were dying. And it was, you know, and that's still happening. Um, and, and I think that's kind of a, a very r real thing happening in sort of America's backyard. And I think that there's also just like an emotional and spiritual cost. You know, I spent time with, um, a gentleman named Larry Gibson who died a few years ago and he, you know, his family had been on their land for 300 years, um, maybe more. And they, we're literally like just a little green patch of a mountaintop surrounded as far as you could see by, you know, giant mine pits um, where they once looked up to mountains. They now looked down several hundred feet to, to gaping, you know, wounds on the side of the mountains. And, um, and it was, you know, I just can't, I can't imagine that experience. It would be, it would be absolutely and utterly heartbreaking, I think, especially for someone whose family had such a long connection to that that place. Um, and I think there's another, you know, there's other um, examples. You know, for for years of living dangerously, we went and spent time in Apalachicola, of Florida, which is um, not too far from my family's homeland in, in southern Alabama on the Gulf Coast. Um, but they there's a bay there, the Apalachicola Bay, that's world famous for these incredible oysters and um, oyster, you know, farming and harvesting has been the driver of that community for a long, long time. You know, a lot of the oyster fishermen and women there have been, you know, our fourth, fifth, sixth generation oyster farmers. And because of a combination of drought and over acidification of the oceans and sea level rise, um, there the chemistry of the bay is being completely thrown off and they're seeing such small, you know, harvest of, of the of the oysters that they're no longer able to make a sustainable living. Um, and this is, you know, something that they very much pride themselves on and it's a deep part of their cultural identity and, and love, you know, they, the oyster fishermen that we met, like just absolutely loved what they were doing and were proud of it. And they were watching, you know, not only the death of their bay, but the death of their livelihood. And, um, and, you know, they were having to encourage their children to, to pursue different careers in a lot of cases, um, they themselves as 40, 50, 60 year old men and, and sometimes women had to go back and get a career training to go in a totally different direction because there just weren't enough oysters um, to provide the community with a living. 
And it, and you know that is just one small example of how climate change, um, compounded by other environmental factors, you know, is really destroying people's lives, even right here in the United States, where we where we kind of think of ourselves as a little bit removed. Um, and that you know, of course, and that's you know just it's you know even even kind of. Well, I shouldn't even say even less striking, but, you know, when you go to places that are, are, are just severely economically depressed, um, like Bangladesh comes to mind, um, places in India, places in Africa, you know, some of the South Pacific islands that are literally drowning, um, you know, you just can't imagine the kind of hardship that people are facing and already facing because of, because of climate change. And those are the things that should affect us and make us think. We need to, we need to change. Not just that we're saving the owls or the whales, but we're also harming people. Yeah, I think um, I think that is absolutely right. This is this is a people problem as much or or more so than it is anything else. Yeah, and I think you know there's a positive. There are you know, there are solutions, and we're not at a place yet where. All is lost, um, and there, and so I think it doesn't have to be, you know, a dire situation. I mean, it, it's going to be a dire situation. It already is a dire situation for a lot of people, but it doesn't have to be this kind of scary uh, projection that we've seen. It, it can be a situation where we come together and, and come up with innovative solutions and call on our leaders to employ them and um, and really do create an environment and an economy that is you know, not only sustainable, but that allows for vibrant communities. Yeah. Well, we've gone a little longer than I had said. Do you have time for one more question? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in what has, oh, the way Pope Francis has affected our, well, the evangelical church in general, but also um, evangelicals and Americans view of environmental issues. Um, what, what are your thoughts about the way the Pope is affecting our view of the environment? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've been kind of in a world of working with a lot of Catholics the past six months because of Pope Francis's leadership. So I'm not as familiar with how he's being received by evangelicals other than just sort of anecdotal stories. Um, but I mean, he's absolutely fundamentally shifted the rules of this game. I think we, it was, you know, an, a, a get, you know, in some ways the best thing that's ever happened, um, to the community of people working to address climate change, to have someone of his moral authority, um, and leadership and also just kind of, uh, presence and, and, and gracefulness come out and, and support this work in, in incredibly eloquent, thoughtful, theologically, you know, sound ways. And I think it's dramatically um, changed the, the status of climate change globally. It's certainly um, the numbers demonstrate that a, a vast majority of American Catholics agree with Pope Francis um, that climate change is a moral issue. So I think it's had a deep uh, and hopefully lasting impact on the American Catholic population. And, you know, he, because he is sort of this pop culture figure, in addition to being a, um, a you know, a, a Catholic leader, uh, he's also deeply moved people outside of the church, which is quite, quite striking. You know, everyone from 
uh, what we we've termed um, amongst my group of friends and and colleagues the Pope is dope crowd. So people who aren't necessarily Catholics, maybe they were raised Catholics and left the church, maybe they're evangelicals, maybe they're just secular people, but who are just absolutely um, intrigued and with Pope Francis and. Um, he has had a larger cultural influence, I think, on on Americans in the United States or on Americans in general. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Why do you think we're intrigued? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think he is, he's kind of a, I think he is filling a moral hole that hasn't been filled in a long time. Um, he is speaking truth to power across party lines. Like I really loved, you know, kind of, I love that he's, you know, that, you know, there's this kind of battle over who owns Pope Francis, whether or not it's the conservatives who believe in traditional marriage and are against abortion or the kind of liberals who are, who are for caring for the environment and more social justice driven. And it's like, no, he, he doesn't want to pick sides. He, you know, he doesn't feel like he has to. And, um, and, and, and I think that goes back to because he's driven by his faith and the Christian faith is not, um, it, it's not wholly owned by Democrats or Republicans. And, and you certainly see that when you get outside of the country where there's just not this religious division. Um, I had the opportunity to go to Rome to work with a global group of Catholics working on climate change. And it was just striking to me that so much of the political division in the United States, um, even amongst the church is just completely not present um, in places like Brazil or India or across um, the EU and, and Africa. And and I think it was just, he's kind of bringing some of that global perspective uh, and that sort of, let's take a, take a step back. You know, American politics are deeply influential, but they are not everything. And yeah, um, yeah so I think, yeah, he's just, and you know, I think part of it's his, he seems very genuine. He's very warm. He um, he's the kind of leader who leads by example and leads with humility. And, and that's, I think I'm and in the United States in particular kind of modern evangelicalism has produced a lot of leaders who, are, you know, could, frankly are, are arrogant and, um, and that's not as resonant anymore. Thanks for listening. You can follow Anna Jane Joyner on Twitter at Anna Jane Joyner, J O Y N E R. You can also, if you do a little bit of searching, find a great interview she did with Rolling Stone. Um, If you're a Showtime subscriber, you can find the documentary series Years of Living Dangerously very interesting. Please subscribe to our podcasts, the Media Scorch Podcast Network. Rate us on iTunes. I'm Jason Weedle. Thanks for listening.